Philip, when did where did it all begin for you? You grew up in Dunedin. Yes, well, you know, a lot of people know the legendary Duncan Lang, who's coached a lot of champions over the years, and that's where it started for me. Um, I, you know, I was my parents put me to swimming because I had a had a small weight problem, looked like one of those little kids that had um, been stuck in the lolly shop for a long time, and it started there with Duncan getting um, taught the the right technique, the Duncan Lang way, with a, you know a few taps on the head with a stick and a bunch of keys around the back of the ears. And it just grew from there, Mark. But I'd imagine what you started your swimming in the pool, and how did it progress to the open water? Yeah, what happened was I um, I started competitive swimming, and you know we there was only seven lanes in the pool back in those days, and I was always eight or nine. And but I loved training. I absolutely ate training up, and maybe it was because I wasn't as good in the um, pool racing, but I had a passion for just grinding people out in the pool. And, you know, first in the water in the morning, always last out. And, you know, we'd be doing absolutely everything we were told um, and liking to burn people, just wear them down in training so that, you know, at the end I was the one left. Who were some of the swimmers of that era that you did swim with, maybe some of the swimmers that established names and reputations in the pool? Yeah, well, I mean, we we obviously know one of them that was Daniel Loder, and in his day, he was the one that was running around hiding by the space invaders machine, or, you know, we would make him, um, because he wasn't the great Daniel Loder back in those days, we would make him hold the rope on the chair for us um, while we were, while we, after training. Um, but um, some of the other ones was um, obviously the uh, uh, Graham, Graham Lang, one of Duncan's sons, and uh, that were all heavily involved in surf life-saving, um, there was always at least six or seven people in the squad that were on the national team going to the Commonwealth Games or the Olympics. Um, so you know, it was a fine stable. You know, Duncan didn't take any um, trouble back then. You know, he, he worked you hard. And then, once again, you know what it's like, Mark. You work hard, get results. And that's one of the things today. There was no, there's no soft option in swimming. And, that, you know, that hasn't changed all the way through. Were you inspired by the likes of the Mark Trevors, the Rebecca Perrots? Oh, totally, totally. Well, Rebecca was swimming up here in, in, in Wellington, and she had a go at actually open water swimming at, at one point. But, you know, I was never fast enough. I was never fast enough being able to get in there and mix it with them. And, you know, you'd go to, you'd go to a Commonwealth Games trial, and, you, I, you know, I always knew that, uh, you know, we were always half the distance too short you know if it was meant to be 1500 3k would be better for me um but yeah that was the nature of the beast and in those early days um you know they had one national event which was a three kilometer open water event and um that's where it all started now i understand you'd go out with duncan and you'd do a lot of your training at st Clair. i mean that's cold did you go out on no wetsuits what you just go out there in the old budgie smugglers did you what with a bit of petroleum grease i mean how many people were doing it um, well, there wasn't a lot of us. There was another lady, uh, or girl back then called Carolyn Wordsworth. There was a pair of us used to go down, and Duncan would be standing on the beach, and we'd be, and as most people know, you know, St. Clair, St. Kilda beaches, they're not the warmest, but that gave me the, the grounding, I suppose, um, for, you know, the, the cold water, the ultra distance was what I ended up being the best at. And, um, and I think the grounding that I got from Duncan and from growing up in Dunedin and those uh, cooler temperatures um, was what put me in good 
scared for later for later in life. Okay, how big was open water swimming internationally at the time? Um, it was large. I wouldn't say enormous. Um, the, through America and Canada, they used to have what they called a professional circuit where you would go and you would swim through the Great Lakes and then every Sunday you would move on to the next event, move on to the next event. And, you know, my first time going away, I was 15, um, representing New Zealand. And, you know, our first trip away was to, um, and I had mentioned it to you before, to Egypt. And we had to swim in the middle of Ni- in the middle of Cairo in the Nile River. Well, a lot of people that have travelled and been through Egypt realise the Nile River is nothing more than basically a big city sewer, to be quite honest, and especially the part in the middle of Cairo. So um, now that's where it started for me. We, we, we raced some Egyptians out here in New Zealand, um, and I did quite well. I was beating the, world, the current world amateur champion at that time, and um, we got invited back to Egypt. Now, I'm not sure whether that was a good thing, but that's where my first international swim was. But through America and Canada, it was always very big. Um, big crowds, huge crowds, right in the outbacks of Canada where, where it was sponsored, you know, there was big sponsorship, there was big money to be earned. And it was very soon into my career, which I turned from being an amateur swimmer to a professional swimmer because... Yeah, the rewards were quite great. But rewards weren't great in pool swimming, were they? I mean, that was still predominantly amateur. So you're saying open water swimming had its own circuit and there was significant money up for grabs. Totally, totally. And and we had to make a... I, it took me a year to decide. We went on the circuit and I swam as an amateur. I didn't receive any money. You know, we were picking up, um, you know, in those early days, you would get... Um, so just finishing the race, you would get a hundred US dollars per hour payment, um, which would help you get to the next town and cover your expenses, etc. But you know that was big money back back then, um, and you know winning a race should be twenty thousand uh, US dollars. And um, even to the to today, the money for the pot for the whole race is twenty thousand dollars. So it was on a real high through through the rest of the world and. You know, there was things here in New Zealand which were starting to grow, um, but having to travel all the way up there was a lot more expensive. Mm. What were the distances you were having to swim, Philip? I mean, let's go back to Cairo. Let's go back to the Nile. I mean, how far was that race? Cairo, from what I can remember, I I can remember the taste of the water, Mark. That's one thing I can remember, and it was bloody terrible, if I must say. Um, But what was, um, it was a nine-hour swim. It was a nine-hour swim, and something tells me it was somewhere around about 33 k's. And what we had to do... Uh, right OK, yeah, I just want to reinforce that for people out there. So it was a 33-kilometre swimming race. Correct. Mm, OK. And, <laughs> and what, what we did, we obviously swam down the middle of the, um, the Nile, um, and it was a course. You swam round and round and round. So you'd go down the middle of the Nile, um, and then to break the current coming back, you would swim in and out of all the jetties and boats and things to cut the current to get you around the lap. Now, while people were coming down to watch the swim, they'd be doing their washing, you know, um, over in Egypt in those days, you know, if you felt like a pee, you didn't really need to go to the toilet, you would just do it where you were, so you could imagine the quality of the water that we were swimming in. Um, so, and once again, that was my first that was my first trip representing my country, and I'd wondered what I'd got myself into. Mm. 
I think I read somewhere, I remember talking to you, Philip, too, that one thing I think you remembered, you put your arm into something uh, while swimming in the Nile, only to find out later what that it was a dead animal. Yeah, you know, it was a dead, um, it was a dead donkey floating in the water, and all of a sudden the hand goes in, we, had, we were on the final lap and sort of sprinting for the finish, and bang, hand, we think, oh, and then just carried on, you know, sprinting for the finish, and, you know, I was fortunate enough to come second in my first international race, and, and of course, an Egyptian had to win it, because it was in Egypt, and, and, um, and there was, you know, out of the 70 that were racing, I think, um, there might have been 20 Egyptians in it, so one of them had to win, but, just the quality of water and things, things like that that just set you up for the future of, of hardening you up because, you know, I was a boy from Dunedin, pretty green, and next minute we're in the middle of Cairo, we're in the Nile, you know, there's people on every corner with guns, and it was through that era where, you know, there was sandbags everywhere and, and, and every hotel was armed, and um, here we are wallowing around in the middle of the Nile. How do you train for a 33k swimming event? How much of it was done in the pool? How much of it was done in the open water? Maybe just describe a couple of tra- typical sort of training sessions for Philip Rush in the lead up to these big events. Yeah, no, listen, I was, um, we were a distance person. You know, I was, what pace I started out at, I'd normally finish at, um, which in some ways is good. In some ways I didn't have that speed to try and break away from somebody. So I had to work hard from the start. But on average, we'd be looking at a 100k week. Um, and that would be week in, week out, month in, month out, and trying to keep the speed component going in that 100k. It's hard because, you know, all the time you're pretty well buggered, um, and in the weekends, Duncan would take us out into the harbour, um, and uh, we'd have a little boat, and we'd be putting up and down in the harbour, mainly just to get used to the cold and the different quality of water, but knowing percent of our training was done in the pool because I, I had to work very hard at, at trying to keep my speed. Mm. Ian, Ian, I'd imagine too, in regards to the stroke that you bring to the swimming pool, do you have to change it much to the open water? Is it about shortening your stroke up? I mean, did the hydrodynamics change somewhat? It, it did a little bit, but once again, you know, these races that we competed in and then later on um, things changed a little bit when we started getting into the ultra-long cook straights and English channels because you never know what, you know, over 28 hours you sometimes get three seasons in one day. Um, but what we what we were getting was the, um, I had to try, I, I was very much a catch-up expert in these days. You know, we don't do as much catch-up. Duncan was a very good technician about that getting that catch in the elbows. And, you know, you can, I can still see, I can still picture him on the side of the pool. You know, that one stroke, that one arm out in front with the elbow cocked, the wrist slightly cocked, and that is what we tried to um, perfect, so to say. You know, I'm not a tall man. Um, you know, my limbs aren't that long, so I had a high repetition, but um, a fairly close, a, a fairly Catch up straight. Okay, so you're in a race at 33k. I know some of the events were longer than that. Nine hours. Uh, you're no black line to follow here. Uh, you're under duress. This is a race. How do you maintain your level of concentration for that period of time? How do you block out the hurt? How do you block out the suffering? Well, if you can master this in sport, and I've, I've been sort of you know, listening prior to, to what you, were, you guys were talking about, this is part of the thing about sport. You know, you've 
we've all watched the All Blacks in the last, um, you know, over the weekend. Once again, they stay focused till the last minute. If you can master that, you can become a champion. But it takes time to master that sort of um, hardness and control and focus. Um, and it's about learning. You know, in the, in the early days, I'd be cranking along, I'd be having a bloody shit fit at my coach because I hadn't bloody... And, I, you know, I was eating Coke and chocolate. Drinking Coke and eating chocolate, well, of course I'm going to have these almighty sugar highs and then I'm going to fall off the edge and think the world's ending. So straight away we had to tidy that piece up. So then it became about getting your mind hard. So the food... Stabilised the we stabilised the sugar rushes and all they so we got our food right so our body was working efficiently and then it's a matter of hardening the mind and that's done by training you train hard you harden yourself up when you race you race hard you focus you keep that mind even if it means shutting off the mind so that you actually don't feel a thing that is the best way and then you can do anything with your body. One of the icons of New Zealand sport, one of our great endurance athletes, endurance swimmer Philip Rush is my guest on our Spotlight Hour. Philip, we were talking about the early part of your career, how you got involved in open water swimming, your first international meet, swimming the Nile in Cairo there in Egypt. I want to get on and look at the Cook Strait, I want to get on and look at the English Channel and those probably two particular um, stretches of water to find your career. But you did spend a lot of time uh, in the States, in Canada, swimming the Great Lakes. Tell us about some of those particular events, the distances involved, and I guess some of the adverse conditions you came up against, particularly the cold. You know, Mark, um, as I say, the top 20 swimmers in the world used to go to these events. You'd get selected to to compete in them. And... Um, We'd start in Atlantic City, as a lot of people know, a great town for the boxing, but also we used to have a race that you'd swim right around Atlantic City. So you'd start out on the seaward side, you'd swim down the boardwalk, and then you'd zigzag in and out of all the canals around the back. That was always the first swim of the year. And for around about seven years, we went on the so-called circuit. What was the average distance of the races, Philip? Um, We'd start off in about 20, uh, 20 miles, and the longest one was 42, which was 18 and a half hours in a cold, shitty lake up in the back of a place called Lake St. John, up, up the back of Canada. Mm. OK, how did you combat the cold? I mean, what sort of water temperatures are we dealing with? Um, well, one of the races, the, the one race which I was, um, I say, the, the winner of, I was the winner by default, um, we ended up spending, I ended up spending six hours and six degrees um, and was claimed the champion because uh, everybody else was in hospital with hypothermia. So we swam on for an extra hour and said, well, you know, what's the point of putting myself through this? We'll claim the title and um, and went from there and the rest ended up spending the night in hospital and I was the only one at the aftermatch function. <laughs> now, you've also raced in places like Europe and I know that you had to once finish a race in the harbour there on the port in Naples in Italy, which basically was always referred to as the Calcutta of Italy. Correct, correct. And, you know, you'd start out on the Isle of Capri, which was an absolutely stunning place. Absolutely stunning. And as the day went on, I think the race was about seven and a half hours. Something reminds me that it was about 22 miles. 
Um, but as the race went on, the water just started slowly changing colour until you swam your final mile right in the middle of the harbour in Naples, which you were just about pushing the bodies away. Um, but um, And one of the other things at that race was as soon as you'd finished, these Italian um, uh, medic staff would pick you up out of the water. They, they would take you straight to an ambulance and then they'd drive you to the medical centre to get checked out. And, you know, after that sort of period of time in the water, you know, all you want to do is get a cold water and, and relax a little bit. Next minute, you're screaming through Naples streets on these cobblestones with the sirens going and getting flung from side to side on the ambulance and just just to finish your day off. Hmm. Did you get much recognition back here in New Zealand? Were some of your achievements uh, getting traction in the New Zealand sporting media? Yes, I, I, I think they were they were fair to me because it was a sport. Now, you know, uh, sorry, you said it's a sport. But, you know, at that time, around those periods, rugby was strong, netball was strong, you know, the other sports and swimming, you know, last seen falling off a rock into Cook Strait or into the English Channel, not to be seen for four or five hours. It's not the most spectacular sport, but um, all of a sudden these latter years, those endurance, tough, mentally, physically tough um, events have become more and more popular. More and more people are interested in, in how you do it and why you do it. So... I think it was fear at the time. Could have been better, as it always is. But I think the media, um, the media grasped once we they, they got onto the journey later on when we were when we were starting to get bigger and bigger and bigger events. First time the Cook Strait was swum was Barry Davenport, nineteen sixty-two. I think Lynn Cox was the first woman to do it in nineteen seventy-five. At what point did the Cook Strait become something that you wanted to swim? Quite interesting how that happened. My first year in open water swimming in New Zealand, Barry Devonport was involved and he um, mentored me as such. Um, we had the Egyptian out here, a guy called Mohammed Maziri, and we'd had some races through New Zealand. He was world amateur champion. And we thought that we would have a race or we would swim across Cook Strait. And I, I thought, yeah, it'd be So idea. how old were you, Philip? Me, I was just turned 15. 15, and you're thinking about swimming the Cook Strait? Well, it wasn't, I wasn't even thinking about it. They said, well, why don't we we'll select you and we'll have the Egyptian and we'll do a race for, for um, uniting swimming across Cook Strait and, and we'll swim together and from start to the finish. Well, you know, that wasn't quite my nature, I'm afraid. You know, you get in, you push hard and, and you have a go. Um, so anyway, the race started, the, the day started, and just to paint a little picture, we all went out on um, some big boats from Island Bay, it's when the fishermen used to take us. We went down to a place called uh, Ohau Point, um, and the old backs of those old fishing boats, you know, they'd just come in from fishing, so there was still a, an odour there, and the poor old Egyptian <laughs> hanging over the side, spewing his heart out, and I'm thinking, it's going to be a good day for New Zealand as we're going down there. We get there, we sort of, I say to him, we're all right, he said, yes, and I'm fine, 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 and, and, and his, uh, in the language. So we hopped in, went into the closest rock, sort of shook hands, and that's the last I saw of him. We were off that day, and I think at the end of the day, I ended up taking 15 minutes out of him across Cook Strait, and that was the first time I swam Cook Strait at the age of 15. 
and um, he was very upset after that day. How do you gauge, though, in a race like that? You know, you've got your head down, you're breathing probably to two sides on occasions, but you don't necessarily have eye contact. You can't necessarily see where your competitor's at. You've got to keep that... For me, it was about stroke rate, and I had to keep the feel of the water. I just had to keep the pressure on myself. I perform best um, when I'm swimming alongside somebody and literally just looking at some part of them, whether it's their face, shoulders, arm, hand, and just focusing on that and thinking of breaking the bloody thing off and just really trying to break him. And obviously he's thinking exactly the same to me, but I'm just drawing strength from what's going on with whether I'm beside that person. And when you're in good shape, people who are listening will know when they're in the best shape of their life and when they've done that training... You can do that. You can look at that person and say, I've got the better of you, I've got the better of you, I'm going to break you. Okay. What about the self-catering side of it? What about the nutritional side of it? How does that work? How did it work? Was there established protocol in terms of feeding stations? No, nothing like that. Every half hour you would, um, every half hour to an hour you would stop for some form of sustenance. Remembering back then we didn't have all these gels powders and potions that give you protein, give you this, you know, that was very rough form. In my earlier days it was coke and chocolate, which was no good for you. Yes, you got a bloody sugar rush. Then we moved on to things like sustagen and sustalite, which was very raw carbohydrate and electrolyte replacement. Um, but in the end, that's what I lived on for when, when I was racing. Um, in the cook straight and longer races like that, you know, some baked beans. I mean, a lot of people would remember homestead chicken. We used to get baked potatoes from them. They were the best um, while I was swimming. So it was just a little bit of a little bit of carbs, but in in good, quick, regular times. At fifteen, you finished the cook straight. Did you sit up and think, oh yeah, that wasn't too easy? I mean, was it t- difficult? Did you go through any tough patches? Well, I remember there was. There was a group of swimmers that had swum up before that came out and supported us this day. And I remember sitting on the rock with a gentleman called Chris Hurdley, and he said to me, you can be happy now. You've done it. You've done something that only, I think, I might have been the 13th or 14th person at the time to um, cross Cook Street. He said, you can celebrate. And I was thinking, oh, there's another swim out, young and naive. There's another swim out the way. I've got that one out the way. What's next sort of thing? You know, Duncan will be proud, proud of me and, 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 and those sorts of things. And then it wasn't until later when, you know, you get back in the media, get onto it, that you realise actually what you have done was quite special. Of course, you then go on and do the double crossing. Um, you still hold the record, I think, for the double crossing of the Cook Strait. You did that, what, I think in 1980, when was that, 1984, was it? Yes, I think, yeah, yeah. Um, and once again, you know, Cook Straits a beast of a piece of water. You've got to wait on weather and tide and all these bits and pieces. And, and there's a lot of wind comes through Wellington. So it's a waiting game. To get, that, to get 16 hours of good weather in Cook Strait is very difficult in some point of it. But once again, we got the opportunity. The weather gave us a break. The tide was there. We had a good team around us. And it was game on. Okay, so, so when you cross the strait, is it just a simple case? You find the closest rock, tumble, turn, and start coming back? What's the protocols in regards to double crossings and triple crossings of these great sort of, um, you know, stretches of water? 
Yeah, there is a protocol. You're allowed 10 minutes out of the water on each side. Now, psychologically, you hop out the water, you've got a clear water, sit on the rock. The last thing you want to do is sit there for 10 minutes and then all of a sudden think, oh, well, I suppose, you know, it's 9 minutes 50, I better get on with it. You know, you're getting cold, you're thinking, well, do I really want to go back? It's a mind game. The best option is, and what I found worked for me, we got to the finish, all of a sudden I heard my coach, Tony Keenan, from the boat screaming blue murder, get off the bloody beach and get back here. Um, and then we'd have something to eat. When we are back in the water, we were back down and, and, and floating, have something to eat, get away from shore, because tides were always quite shitty, so to say, close to shore were you. Um, and remembering it's a team effort. You know, we've got skippers on the boat that spend a lot of time working and plotting as we're going. Um, the coach's job was to keep me alive, and my job was to, to swim. So it, it is, it's like anything you do, Mark. You know, you've got somebody that supports you in the studio to get the best out of you. Um, it's the same in sport and in anything you do in life. And it's not just a straight line, is it? People forget that you guys are zigzagging, you guys are working the currents, you guys are making sure that you're on the right side of the tides in regards to them turning, etc. Correct. And and you have to make sure that it becomes a timing issue. So you can't sit there for 10 minutes because the tide might be turning and then it's going to take you down into a different position. So the easiest option is keep those food and keep the drinks and the food down to a short period of time. And we're talking short being, you know, five to ten seconds on average. Um, so you're throwing it down, you're saying, you know, asking if there's anything that you need to be doing or looking at, get on with your throat. Next half hour you do the same, you do the same, you do the same. Any, any, any sea life there in the Cook Strait where you think, oh, what was that shadow? Um, there's always plenty of lovely dolphins out there to look after you and you know we've had points where we've had the odd shark come around and dolphins um, come and sort of stay around you and they actually stay with you for the rest of the day um, and you know we had seen sharks coming towards swimmers. Dolphins come, all of a sudden they stay with you for the next four or five hours and then to say put on a big display as if to say well you're safe now and we'll see you later. Um, but, you know, on that double crossing, and I still remember it like it was yesterday, we're getting close to the, uh, close to the North Island, I'm swimming along in there, and we heard this whoosh, whoosh, whoosh of um, Westpac helicopter, we're bringing all the, um, we're bringing the TV out, I think it was only one channel back in those days, um, but and then all of a sudden, I'm limping along because when you do catch up, you do put a lot of pressure on one of your shoulders when you breathe to one side, and I was sort of swimming like a lame duck, to be quite honest. Um, and then all of a sudden, uh, Westpac put this new uh, million candle power light on. Well, it lit up the sea underneath me like it was daylight and had these great images because your mind's tired, everything's tired, of all these amazing fish coming up towards you. And it was just horrifically scary. Um, but... As I say, the, the rest history because we did get there, um, and and it was a fantastic experience. Spotlight our legendary open water swimmer Philip Rush. Uh, Philip, tell us about when the idea came about trying to swim the English Channel and swim the Triple Crossing, and the lead up to that particular day. Well, Mark, it was it was quite interesting. We were we were travelling the world doing the circuit circuits and I was you know I was winning the cold swims the warm swims I was middle of the field so it was um 
And then Tony suggested maybe we go to England. You know, everybody's like Mount Everest. If you haven't climbed Mount Everest, you're not a mountaineer. If you hadn't swum the English Channel, you weren't a marathon swimmer or open water swimmer. So um, we decided that was going to be the goal. We'll go and go to England and we'll, we'll swim the English Channel. And Tony said, well, you're, you know, one way is not going to be too much of a challenge. He said, one person has swum it three ways prior and it was 38 hours. And he said, I reckon that that's just built for you. And from there, we put the plan into place. You know, we had great support around the place in those early days. It wasn't a cheap experience, but um, we we put the team around us to make it happen. Yeah, you went to London too. There was a bit of waiting, wasn't there, in England and the UK for this? It wasn't just something that you turned up, spent a couple of nights in the hotel and decided that you'd go off and do it. <laughs> no, I mean, if anybody's been to Dover in summer, they'll realise that there's more than just a little bit of waiting. Um, I think from woe to go until I got in the water, it was something like three and a half years um, waiting. Um, every time we turned up in Dover, we'd go there, we'd do the world circuit, and then we'd go to Dover for a month, and we got on board with a pilot who was he was right on his game, um, and he worked well with us. And, you know, Tony was... Tony Keenan um, was a taskmaster. He coached people um, like Rebecca. He was Rebecca's coach. And also in the earlier days, the Keith Hancock's. Um, so he knew what he was about. He was an old PT instructor from England, and he was a hard bastard, to be quite honest. And he didn't take any crap. So whatever happened, whatever we hopped in, whenever we hopped in on that first year, he said, Philip, we're not hopping out with one crossing or half a crossing. If the weather gets rough, we're going to finish it off. So every time we hopped in and the weather got rough, we would always complete the task. So we'd go one way, or if we were one and a half, we would go two ways. We were fortunate enough that first year that we were there, we got three crossings in, um, and I broke the double crossing record. And, of course, all of a sudden, the perspective of what we were about changed. Everybody thought, well, maybe these people are serious. You know, that was the 17-and-a-half-hour swim first up. First year we were there. Um, But from there, we just had to wait for the weather. And, you know, I'd get the call at all hours of the day and night, be down at the boat at 7 in the morning, be down at the boat at 6 at night. We're going to have another go. The weather's going to be good. I think there's a gap there. Remembering at that point the record was 38 hours, so we were looking for 40 hours of calm weather. What do you remember of the triple crossing? Describe the water conditions. I imagine a lot of ships run through that uh, part of the world. Yep, I can, and it, as I say, it's one thing that sticks in my mind. I got the phone call at, it's around about 5.15. They said, when can you be to the boat? There's going to be a weather window. And I'm thinking, yeah, right, we've heard this before, blah, blah, blah. Packed, ready to go, down to the boat. Seven o'clock, I'm standing on the beach, um, on the rocky beach, looking out at a mill pond, like dead calm. Not even a ripple. Anyway, we hopped in. Um, Tony said, right, let's just get into a rhythm. Let's go. And the understanding we all had, the pilot that we had gave me some times for each crossing beforehand. Um, And all of those times were between five and ten minutes of the actual times that we did. So he knew that what was going to happen. I'm thinking if we do this, well, we're going to be God's gift. Um, anyway, the day started, hopped in, dead calm, swimming into the night. There's 300 boats go across the channel. There's 400 go through. The swimmer has to give way. 
um, got into a good rhythm. It was feeling good. But I'm thinking in the back of my mind, look, we're going to get three quarters of the way over. Wind's going to blow up. Same old story. We'll finish one lap on the boat home. Well, three quarters of the way across, Tony leans over as he's giving me some warm baked beans. He said, listen, we're on for the fastest crossing ever across the English Channel, which was Penny Lee Dean in seven hours 40, I think it was. And I said, you're joking. Anyway, he said, just keep that stroke going. We're not going to push it too hard yet. Remember, we've got three more, you know, two more crossings. Anyway, very hard not to contain that excitement. Mine shut off. Strokes are going at 72 strokes a minute. Um, you know, just, just keeping it dark. Um, and I loved swimming in the dark because you can't see anything. It's very easy to get your frame in that frame of mind of getting rid of the pain and just getting on with the job. You might swim slightly slower, but at the end of the day, it's just consistent and it's nice. Anyway, getting close to the finish, Tony said, listen, I want to give it 45 minutes. Let's just give it medicine for 45 minutes. He said, I think you can do it. Anyway, we missed being the fastest person ever by five minutes. Um, I think we went 7.45 or 7.50, something like that, and we were the fastest male ever to swim from England um, to France. Once again, the quick turnaround, back out into the water. Um, good feed, and then on with it. It was still dark, swimming back. The only issues I had was a little bit of um, chafe on the back of my neck. Everything was going well. Water was dead flat flatter than they'd ever seen it. They said they hadn't seen water like it in 20, 20 years. Um, getting back to the other side, once again we started talking and Tony said, well listen we're on for another record. He said, I know you You know, how do you feel? I said, well I feel pretty good. I feel really good. He said, just contain yourself. I don't want you to blow yourself up. Anyway, we got back across and we, I think it was 7.50 going one way. Going back we went 8.15. Um, which was a new record, the fastest time ever um, in the channel. And I'm feeling pretty bloody good about myself at this point. Sitting on the rock, I had to grease the back of my neck because nobody's allowed to touch you. So we sort of packed it a little bit like a bearing. Um, and then we're on for the last lap. Now, the last lap was very interesting. The pilot had said we're going to be about 12 hours. Yeah, Philip, I've, I've got about a minute. Right, right. Okay, at the end of the day, we finished it off and 28 hours, 21 minutes. And we took 10 hours off the record and the rest is history. And the regret was you didn't do the fourth. Totally. You had a chance, didn't you? You were asked if you wanted to do a fourth crossing, but you you didn't want to be remembered as the guy that did three and a half. That's the one. That's the one. No. And as I say, to this day, I mean, I still think about why didn't we give it a go. You must give it a go. If you're in that position or any position like that, give it a go. You've got nothing to lose. Well, Philip Rush, it's uh, a remarkable story. I could spend another hour here talking with you because there are so many other things you did do in your swimming career and the English Channel Crossing. There's a lot more stories, I'm sure. But look, uh, you're an inspiration, a wonderful part of the New Zealand sporting legacy, open water swimming now at the Olympic Games, and you guys were the original pioneers. So thank you for taking the time this afternoon and joining us here. Thanks very much, Mark.